It's like Nana always used to say, if you're going to be attacked by a giant swarm of locusts, hope it's a mild one. (laughs) God bless Nana. Nana, we love you. Welcome back, y'all. I'm Ryan Whitley. I'm Jessica Burke. And I'm Damian Smith. And together, we're Whiskey and the Weird, and we're excited to be back with you for this season four. Each season, we explore one volume of the British Library's Tales of the Weird series, which exhumes the lost weird fiction of yesteryear by mostly obscure authors. Each episode, we analyze one story from that volume, and the forecast for these discussions is always full spoiler. (laughs) I love it. It gets better every time. This season, as fair autumn breezes turn cruel and biting, we're excited to be reading Heavy Weather. Tempestuous Tales of Stranger Climes, edited by Kevin Manwaring. So batten down those hatches, friends, and button up those peacoats, because a foul wind is blowing a story our way. There it is. (laughs) (laughs) And Jessica's here to tell us what it is. Oh, I sure am. We are going to talk about A Mild Attack of Locusts by Doris Lessing. Well, as long as it's mild. Before we get into that, we've got some bar talk to do. Jess, what is in your glass there? Well, I was inspired again by Damien, and I got this myself- is wonderful. This is, I think, two in a row this where is... you've been inspired by me, and I am glowing. Well, it's the uh, Trader Joe's brewed ginger beer. Oh, okay, yeah, okay. That makes sense. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I just poured a bunch of whiskey in it. And it's the Rocknar Rye, and it's great. It's really filling up my jar nicely. Uh, <laughs> Which is the true value of any whiskey in Jessica's household. How much does it fill my jar? Voluminous. How, how, how cutely does it sit in my glass? And also, how short is the bottle? We can't forget that, obviously. Um, but I have been reading something very cool. It is the Razor Blades Volume One. So Razor Blades is the quarterly oh, the graphic horror novel? anthology that's put together by um, James Tinian and Steve Fox. Yeah. So they collected the first five quarterly issues into this big beefy look at that hardcover, wow. um, and it's really lovely. So I am always more of a book reader than a single issue reader for comics and things Mm -hmm. like that they're not all winners there's a lot of stuff packed in here and it's a fun mix of comics like horror comics horror art like one page kind of Mm -hmm. horror creation some short stories some really interesting articles with like horror creators and illustrators really interesting stuff there's names that if you read comics you'll definitely recognize if you read anything horror related you'll recognize Um, but then enough new people and new artists to be really engaging and kind of discover some cool stuff. So I'm very glad I actually got this as a gift and it is very lovely. So it's yeah, razor I saw, blades. I saw your post on that and I'd not heard of it. I'm very intrigued by that and 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 we'll look for a copy. It's cool. Dude, like really James, glossy and Yeah, cool it looks looking. nice. James Tinian is a slam dunk. Guy's just a strong writer. Yeah, and he has at least one comic that he's put together in each of the like I think this one collects five issues. So he has plenty of stuff in there. He does at least one interview, and then it's just a ton of other people doing stuff. Very cool. It is very cool. Damien, (laughs) what are you drinking? Well, thank you for asking, Jessica. Inspired by you, (laughs) I'm drinking whiskey. Nice. (laughs) No, and also inspired by this story, which you will find out in a minute why it's relevant. I am drinking High West Campfire tonight 
It is a uh, blend of straight rye whiskey, uh, straight bourbon whiskey, and also a blended malt scotch whiskey by High West. Um, I love their double rye. They're just really great product. And this went out of circulation for a while. For some reason, I couldn't find it anywhere at the campfire. And then all of a sudden it came back and I was thrilled. So um, riding this peat high that I have been riding <laughs> with the art bag recently, I just love that smoky, smoky brown water. And uh, this definitely delivers. So High West Campfire is what's in my glass. When you said it was going to be inspired by this story, I was hoping it was going to be a grasshopper. Uh, yeah, but I don't have creme de menthe <laughs> in my house and I never will because I'm not be- like I'm not like an 80s Coke fiend. OK, I don't drink like <laughs> that's. That's who drinks grasshoppers. I know, but it's so cute. I've, it is I've cute. got to say, I had a really unfortunate evening with grasshoppers. <laughs> well, I'm sure, I'm sure that stories are coming. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so that's what's in my glass tonight. That's over uh, an ice ball and just a double rocks glass. That's typically how I take my whiskeys. As far as what I've been... So I, I uh, in order to abide by my wife's demands, I caught up on season one of White Lotus and then just wrapped up season two. And it brought me back to how much I love Aubrey Plaza. She's a very talented actress who's typically seen as sort of a one note from her roles, like April in Parks and Recreation. She's just sort of that sarcastic, mm-hmm. you know, kind of like meh person. I saw her in Black Bear a couple of years ago, uh, and it was an excellent film, and she really showed her acting chops. So um, my recommendation, a movie that I just saw earlier today, was Emily the Criminal. Uh, where she stars it is an mm-hmm, excellent mm-hmm. pick um it's a tight hour and 40 minute film she really shows her range uh, i'm not going to say that she breaks her archetype that much because she's still a little bit of a sarcastic like but i think it's a very poignant film she definitely uh is is in a strong cast as a whole but it the movie is completely centered around her yes yeah and i think it's it's a just a fantastic film for no matter what genres of film that you like if you like action if you like thrillers if you like suspense uh it's not a horror movie but it is just a really interesting glimpse into how somebody can very quickly be dragged into the like criminal underworld and it had some it had some fun little like you know, moments and really great scenes, uh, excellent cinematography, mm. excellent direction, really strong script writing. And again, Aubrey Plaza, I think was just a rock star in it. So I would suggest you go out and watch both black bear, but tonight my recommendation officially <laughs> is, uh, Emily, the criminal. Nice. What about you, Ryan? So I'm also drinking something thematic tonight. Uh, this is, the Loch Lomond 12-year-old single malt Scottish whiskey. Loch Lomond. And Loch Lomond, yeah. It, it's, a, it's a whiskey distillery with a bit of a checkered past. Uh, it, it, it did not uh, <laughs> rate very well uh, over the uh, last number of decades. There's a, there's a book out there uh, called uh, Michael Jackson's Guide to Single Malt yes. Whiskey or something. Yeah, it's not the Michael Jackson you're thinking of. I, no, I'm that, conf- dude, that, that dude is a premier whiskey enthusiast. He is, is but like I'm, I'm confident that this is a book that is only sold to Americans. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so he he universally pans uh, Locke Lohman's offerings in that book, but this particular iteration is a new iteration, uh, and I picked it up. It is apparently the official whiskey of the Open, the golf tournament. Um, and so I picked it up, and it's it talks on the on the front of the bottle as being perfectly balanced. And I'm here to tell you that that is a great description. There is a lot of uh, honey and heather up front in this golden whiskey. A lot of peat in the back end. 
uh, and they somehow they meet in the middle uh, where presumably there's whiskey and and create this amazing, very mild blend for whiskey. So there's there's the there's the thematic. The theme yeah, there's your theme. In. It's a very mild whiskey. Um, I wrote, Look, loaded I, with locust flavor. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think this is a whiskey that's going to win any awards. I'll be perfectly honest with you. Is this a whiskey that I'm glad to have on my shelf? Yes. This is a great whiskey to have on your shelf. Uh, if for no other reason, if you don't particularly care for it, then it's a nice one you can serve to guests that come over that say, I'd love to try some of your single malt stuff. Uh, well, here, have have this one. I'll uh, tell you what, Ryan, you don't I, have to get into the other stuff. I got to be honest, like I would much rather be the distiller that produces something that you have as like the const as like the decanter. Right. Whiskey. This is you the know, decanter the one, whiskey. Yes. The one that's yes. always in the glass decanter as opposed Absolutely. to being the one that's like highly coveted that I buy once a year. Right. I just want to be your house whiskey. That yeah, no, this guy's goal, making more so. money. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's like the Tito's of the whiskey world. It's like, I, right. I don't need to be great. I just need to be there always. You just need always. to be there. Yeah. And, and, and from what I've tasted so far, which is about four or five glasses, not all this evening. Uh, <laughs> He's lying all this evening. The Loch Lomond is one that's going to be there. <laughs> four glasses in front of him right now. So as for what I've been enjoying, uh, uh, last episode, I, I talked about a, a Christmas present that I received, and I'm going to do the same with this episode, uh, I got the new book um, from Francois Berenger. I don't. I know you guys know how much I enjoy Lovecraft's work. Francois Berenger is an you? artist. Who? Yeah, Fran- Francois Berenger. Oh, I, I'm an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Uh, yeah, four or five whiskeys that I haven't had this evening. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Uh, a, a wonderful artist who illustrates HPL's uh, short stories in these uh, very large format. I mean, bigger than a coffee table book. These 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 paintings he does are absolutely brilliant. the The story is fully illustrated. There's a painting on every page, and he does one Lovecraft story per volume. He's done three or four of them oh, so wow. far. I have the Call of Cthulhu, and I have uh, volumes one and two of At the Mountains of Madness. I think the Dunwich Horror is releasing soon, and he's just announced that he's doing the Shadow over Innsmouth. But I can see by your faces that you're looking at some of these paintings yes, now. They're, I they're just incredible. Some of Francois <laughs> yeah. Berenger stuff. It is epic. Yeah, in it's the really illustration. It. it is epic in the art. This is some really fantastic stuff. It, I don't even care if you like HPL or not. Uh, it, it, this is this is worth looking at. Um, and I've, I'm kind of hanging on to them. I want to give them to my my children to read for their first experience of a Lovecraft story at one point, because I think it'd be a great way to introduce Lovecraft to somebody. Oh, this is very idea. cool. You know what I like about it that I see that's pretty consistent based on the images that I've been, that have been flashed in front of me in the past 15 <laughs> seconds is that it's got that like wispy dreamlike mist covered mm-hmm. aesthetic to it that really amplifies, I think the grandeur. So it shows like maybe a little watercraft or something like Mm -hmm. that. And then this giant beast, but the beast is in the centerpiece. It's like the crashing waves and the mists around it that sort of obscure and leave a lot of mystery to it. So man, good stuff. The sense I get is this, if, if Del Toro ever gets the green light to do at the mountains of madness on film, then the Behringer paintings are, the studies for what he wants sure. to show on the yeah. screen. Yeah. His work is incredible. So I really love that art. It's, it's a great book to have around uh, just to look at from time to time, but also what a, what an awesome introduction to Lovecraft's work. If you've never read it before. Very cool. Yeah. That's super interesting. 
So that's going to take us to our author and publication info for this evening. We've got Doris May Lessing, the only Nobel Prize winning writer we've covered so far. Hey. She was born on October the 22nd, 1919 in Kermanshaw, Iran, to British parents. Six years later, they moved to southern Rhodesia, or modern-day Zimbabwe, where she lived for almost 25 years, and which serves as the setting for this episode's story. Originally educated in various Roman Catholic schools, she ultimately left school at age 13 and continued her education on her own. She read widely in politics and sociology, worked as a nursemaid and a telephone operator, before marrying Frank Wisdom when she was 18. Nice. That marriage produced two children before it collapsed after six years. Jeez. It was Lessing who left the home, however, leaving the children in the care of their father. She would continue to defy many traditions and conventions throughout her life. In an interview with Salon, she said, quote, I couldn't stand that life. It's this business of giving all the time, day and night, trying to conform to something you hate, end quote. <laughs> Following her deepening left-wing political ideals, she joined the Left Book Club, founded by publisher Victor Galanz, and there met Gottfried Lessing. They married, had a child, and soon divorced. <laughs> it was Maybe just about that man, quick. Man. Doris does. <laughs> a busy uh, the, lady. The married life was 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 just not for her. Uh, which is not to say that married men weren't. Between 1943 and 49, she had a spicy love affair with the married Royal Air Force pilot John Whitehorn. And about that relationship, she was quoted as saying. It was that classical love affair every woman should have just once. Wow. As it turns out, Mr. Lessing was stepping out on her, too, so all's fair in love and war, I guess. As a writer, Doris Lessing is a titanic figure of 20th century literature. She authored more than 26 novels, more than 20 short story collections, plays, operas, memoirs, poetry, and several notable works of nonfiction. Her early work focused on social issues, which she wrote about with a radical bent. In the 70s, to the great disappointment of stuffy literary critics, she started writing science fiction through a Sufi lens. Many consider her works to be epics of feminism, but Lessing herself denied the title, refusing as ever to be pigeonholed. When she was notified that she had won the Nobel Prize, for example, she responded famously, Oh, Christ, I couldn't care less. <laughs> <laughs> Ten years on, it was put up for auction, fetching a quarter million dollars and making it only the second Nobel Prize to ever be sold. <laughs> Lessing died on November the 17th, 2013, in her home in London and was laid to rest in a humanist funeral service. She will long be remembered as, in the words of the Nobel Prize Committee, quote, the epicist of the female experience, who with skepticism, fire, and visionary power has subjected a divided civilization to scrutiny. Our story this episode was originally published in The New Yorker in 1955. 
And now I'd like to turn it over to a man to explain her work. <laughs> Damien, you have the summary. Oh, that was pretty good. All right. Well, before I jump in and take this now jaunted uh, <laughs> responsibility, I would like to let it be known that the last Nobel Prize that was sold was from Russian journalist Dmitry Muratov, who at auction raised $103.5 million. Good grief. For uh, their Nobel Prize, which was sold in June of 2022. Okay, so that must be the third one then, because uh, the research I did that was that was not the uh, that was not the name I remember. So, no, well, this is well before. What does Nobel Prize look like? It's a gold coin. It is a gold coin. That's so boring. I hear it's filled with chocolate. Yeah, I hear it's filled with chocolate. I'd sell mine too. All right. Uh, Anyway, a a further part of that quote, by the way, was uh, uh, in classical Lessing style. Apparently, that she had won every award for literature in Europe, so she might as well take that one too. (laughs) (laughs) Doris, you dog. Okay, let's get back to the story. And now I present to you a mild attack of locusts by Doris Lessing in just a few minutes. Margaret is in her third year on the maize plantation because that's what it was. It was a plantation and the rains were good. She shares governing duties over the 3000 acres of farmland with her husband, Richard and old Stephen, who is Richard's dad, a cantankerously joy, jovial lifetime farmer. Oh, oh, also in a bunch of indentured servants who live on the estate. Um, Anyway, just as the trio felt that this was going to be a good season because of those strong rains, they get word that the locusts are coming. Quote, we haven't had locusts in seven years. The men cry in a hilariously self-aware nod to all the (laughs) locust aficionados out there. You know who you are. Even knowing this, they carry on with their daily toil, knowing that this day will come. That is, of course, until the day comes when the swarm is seen on the horizon. Stephen visualizes the swarm approach in the distant mountain vista. Richard, the husband, calls to his houseworkers who gather up noisy metal and clang the emergency all heads gong. It basically riles out anyone who's on campus and everyone to do one of two tasks, either A, collect more of the loudest objects on the land, or B, start burning fires in prepared patches around the estate to hopefully dissuade the locusts from descending on our crops. As the men do the laboring, old Stephen asks Margaret to make some tea. Quote, it's thirsty work, this. So she fills a couple uh, canisters and sends him on his way to slake the thirsts of the workers. And eventually the swarm comes. And much of the story at this point is Margaret watching and Lessing describing a very real infestation, if a mild attack, of locusts. She calls out rust and oxblood colored crowds weighing down trees Clouds that basically break branches and snap boughs, covering the shoeing laborers and old Stephen himself, who swats at them as effectively as holding a match in a blizzard. The bugs devouring anything that's green, including the promising new growth that had just emerged and falling like hail atop the roof of their house. These bugs are everywhere. If you want to see what it's like to be amidst a locust infestation, please, by all means, do what my co-hosts do and just Google it. (laughs) 
There's a lot of videos on YouTube. You won't be disappointed. Anyway, the point is, is that they all know that the crops are lost. So the efforts shift to keep the swarm moving. As Steven splits a locust to show that it's brimming with eggs, which essentially would show that young locusts or hoppers, as they're referred to in the story, would come in only a few short years and provide ongoing plague as opposed to the once every seven year swarm. In a contrasting scene, however, old Steven is shown uh, to pull a single locust out of his pocket while he's inside of the house and away from the swarm. And he says, quote, you've got the strength of a steel spring in those legs of yours. And he pleasantly returns it to the swarm outside. He lets it go. He lets it go. It's so sweet. And this scene, of course, makes Margaret extremely happy for some reason. (laughs) So the worst passes over as nightfall calms the swarm who awaken with the sunrise and spread their wings to dry out the dew. This provides an overwhelming show to Margaret who marvels at the sight while the men follow government advice about watching for hopper nests and shovel out dead and wounded locusts, which Stephen assures will make for months of meals, comparing the bugs themselves to smoked fish. These bugs that basically flew through all this black smoke, (laughs) they taste just like smoked fish. Okay, Stephen, you're old. Thanks, Steve. No. And this, folks, is where the story ends, with the men essentially eating supper, saying, quote, it could have been worse, while the madness of the situation leaves Margaret a bit shell-shocked, feeling, quote, like a survivor of after war. The end. I had a cricket nice. taco once. <laughs> it, did like not turtles. Taste, it did not taste like smoked fish. They're pretty nutty. I've had crickets as well at a Mexican restaurant, and I think they take, they taste nutty. They taste like toasty. That's it. Yeah. It tastes like a toasty, like shell of a yeah, peanut or something. Yeah, you're just eating exoskeleton, I guess. Pretty much. It's That's pretty much it, it. Well, I want to start right off this evening with a point about the writing. So here's the very first line of the story. This is on page 127 of our volume. It reads, the rains that year were good. They were coming nicely just as the crops needed them. Or so Margaret gathered when the men said they were not too bad. What does this first line tell you (laughs) about the story you're about to read? And following up on that, do you think this is successful as a first line? I really like it. It immediately gives you some insight into Margaret, the sort of out of place woman who doesn't really know what's going on and apparently doesn't have a lot of opinions. (laughs) (laughs) or is heavily influenced by the men. I think it instantly sets the place that this is a misogynistic, if softly misogynistic mildly, world. Mildly, please. Yeah. Mildly, mi- yes. Mildly. Yes, yes. Mildly like a salsa verde. <laughs> uh, a misogynistic world um, in which a woman plays her part and can be an observer, but is also heavily influenced by the indications, actions, and words of men. Right. It's and, like and because it's, of that, it makes for a very effective first line. Mm-hmm. It's not that she doesn't have opinions, but at this point, she has probably had a lot of opinions and has been told, no, right. that's not right. No, right. no, right. no. <laughs> but yeah, also, I, I mean, that that that's pervasive throughout. I mean, it sets the tone <laughs> and then and then reinforces itself a number of times through mm-hmm. the story. Like, Absolutely. this is crazy. Make us some tea. It's thirsty work. <laughs> right. You know, 
this is nuts. All hands Make on deck. Make us some supper. Except for you. Yeah. Uh, and there's even a line where she's like, at some point, like, maybe I'll let the locust land upon me. Like, as if that's a, uh, like a passage or a rite of passage <laughs> for someone to be so emboldened as to let the locust alit upon your body. Because yeah, one of the men had them crawling all over him at one they point. All did. So, yeah, they all yeah. did. Like, the, all the workers were covered in them. Um, Stephen and Richard were both covered in them. Like, it, they made it clear that this was something they weren't afraid to go out and throw themselves in the midst, while Margaret, for the most part, hid out in the household. Yeah, I think it sets up uh, a tale about misogyny in in a man's plantation world here in right. in, in Zimbabwe or, or southern Rhodesia as it was known and I think it is a successful first line it it's yeah. it's one that uh it's one that sets the tone for what's going to happen next and as Damien rightfully pointed out that tone is reinforced over and over and over again from start to finish uh it, it, it is almost as if the thesis of this story is uh more important than the plot yeah <laughs> so speaking of uh, how would you characterize the theme of this story what's what's this story really about i have some thoughts but i'm really curious about what jessica has to say <laughs> let's go with oh man take your pick we've got sexism we've yep. got a, a fair amount of colonialism Check. with our uh yeah no doubt plantation dwelling farmers um uh, i think that one's probably the most obvious the like swarming white families coming in and taking resources pretty regularly and you are just trying to get through it yeah i don't know and what a, else? As, a, as a plague that lasts too right right yeah like it's not can... going away you, you might as well figure out how to deal with it you just have to deal mm -hmm. with it it's coming in waves okay so i went to a second and third level and i saw the locust being representative of atomic bombs Ooh, i also picked up on that Okay. okay. Say more, Damien. Okay, yeah. 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 okay, no, good. it's not. Yeah. Because there were a few allusions to the fact of like, we just have to deal with this. There's no way we can prevent it. There's right. no mm -hmm. way we can dissuade mm -hmm. it. There's no mm -hmm. way we can diffuse it. So basically what we have to do is just 86 everything in our life and the survivors move on and start anew. Yeah. Right. And the fact that this takes place like a decade after the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, like it's timely enough to where it seems to make sense when they refer to the young um stage locusts the ones the that hoppers. don't swarm yet the hoppers basically they stay localized but they're still very destructive that to me is like ground troops and, mm -hmm. and typical warfare a every phrase they used to describe the locust was militarized yeah 100 every, every metaphor was a military metaphor so what i yeah. saw was this was the swarm of and you know archetypically at this time it was men who fought and women who like waited by to see what the effects were and that's exactly how this entire story played out mm -hmm. the men went out put themselves in the swarm, knew they really couldn't do much, but did what they could and then dealt with the consequences with sort of a laissez-faire. Oh, well, time to start over. Let's eat dinner and then worry about it the next day. Whereas the woman was just like, how can you feel this way? This is insane. Like, this is not the way that people right. should Right. She's the one looking around saying, I feel like I've survived a war. Like yeah. everything is gone mm -hmm. and wiped exactly. out. Exactly. So for me, there were those overarching themes, obviously, of colonialism, obviously, of misogyny. But I think the big thing was this was a microcosm of war, atomic war. Yeah. I, I love how deep both of you guys went with these themes. Uh, and I really get behind both of them. The the ideas uh, that are behind the colonialism, the racism, the misogyny, the story that Jess brought up, I resonate with. Uh, the ideas that Damien brought up about 
a critique of war, particularly atomic war. I didn't go that far. I just I just thought uh, in terms of war imagery, but I really like what you did with atomic war there. Uh, I want to come in on the top level, the the surface level, uh, and just reinforce that there's there's a lot of themes here about loss and devastation mm-hmm. um, sure. that, that resonated with me particularly as as I think. Uh, Damien and I have both alluded to, we both have families that live in areas that were severely affected by Hurricane Ian. Uh, I just traveled down South Florida uh, for the holidays and saw some of the devastation firsthand, but also saw some of the resilience of the people there. And that resilience is coming through in this story too, the way they're they're sort of resolved to the issue that is before them. We're going to have to deal with this. Let's figure mm-hmm. it out. It uh, It's going to affect us, but it's not going to kill us. It's, it's not, not going to end us. us. Yeah. yeah, it's not going to destroy yeah. our drive. It's not going to destroy our efforts, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I, so even, those are surface very, layers things, but I really like the, the depth that you both brought to this. There's even a line, and I don't have the book in front of me. I should have. But there is a line to where Lessing says something like, through Margaret, says... This wasn't the first time in the past mm-hmm. couple of years that we've been facing like immeasurable ruin or something to that effect. Right. And I think and I thought that really resonated. It was like it was like it was something that was almost spoken about in a laughing way and just sort of a jocular. Oh, looks like this is the year that we lose everything and <laughs> we go bankrupt or whatever. And she's just like, right. how is this spoken with with such lightness? Yeah. I mean, but it's the, guys the same are way just like, it's how you it's how we roll. It's, it's the weird. same way that we do in Florida here. Right. Where every every summer and fall we roll the dice and right. you, you don't know what's going to happen uh, in terms of where it's going to hit, how where it's going to hit. hit. Right. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. So uh, that part did did resonate strongly with me. I think that uh, the characters of Stephen and Margaret represent the concept of generational differences. What would you suggest some of those differences are if if indeed you accept that premise? I mean, I think it's a good observation. I think it shows a little bit of the old world stoicism versus new world like realism, which is Stephen goes out into the storm. He's swatting away at these insects, knowing that it doesn't make a darn bit of difference. <laughs> he shows a little bit of dichotomy of character where he's scientifically splitting open one to show the eggs to Mm -hmm. say this is a real problem but then on the other hand when he's in the confines of his own house or in the house and he's protected from the insects he finds one in his pocket and he says like oh he basically gives it a compliment you've got some really spring-like legs right right and instead of killing it it's one of millions of intruders killing killing it or letting it live doesn't matter he throws it out into the into the great wide open with the rest of its millions of brethren. And I think that he's just sort of an oafish, like live on the surface type character. And I think that Margaret takes other approaches. She's the one that notices the things like uh, the, the morning after where all the locusts are waking up from a cold, you know, dark night. They have dew on their wings. They're spreading their wings. I think it's referred to as like a red brown steam mm-hmm. that emits off the earth when these, you know, bugs, these millions of bugs are basically drying their wings off and flying off. She sees the artistic like devastation that occurs and he just sees it as like, well, we got to do some work and right. sees it as more of a labor, like a daily labor. Mm-hmm. But he's also not as affected by the outcome. He's just like, yeah, good, bad or indifferent. We just got to move forward. So I do see a lot of difference between the two. I do think that it probably represents an older generation, newer generation approach. 
And there are some very distinct markers between how they respond to this, uh, to this influence, to this catalyst. Uh, so I think that that's a pretty astute observation. Well, and particularly if you go with the war theme, the war metaphor that we talked about earlier, uh, you sometimes can hear in older generations when you're talking about armed conflict. Uh, well, that's the way that's the way it goes. But these are right. people that, uh, you know, at the risk of sounding ageist, these are folks that aren't going to have to live with the consequences, the the generational lasting consequences of some of these armed conflicts. Uh, they have a, they have a more, uh, you know, laissez faire attitude towards it because they can afford to. I think I saw it as maybe not necessarily a generational difference, but Margaret was described a few times as like being from the city and mm-hmm. hoping, you know, kind oh, of hoping okay. to go yeah. back to the sure. city. And he's always been a farmer, right? Mm-hmm. He's always lived in the country. So that was another so more of a classist thing. Classist or some Re- familiarity or something. Yeah. yeah. Or even the like difference between like living living out on a big giant prairie if you haven't done that city mouse country mouse is that what you're saying is this the city mouse country mouse thing jess it's a city (laughs) hopper country hopper (laughs) oh man there's a hallmark movie in this yet (laughs) so let's dig into this story's place in in this volume particularly this is a series of weird fiction Tales of the Weird. That's what we're. That's what it's called, right? Mm-hmm. Does this story qualify as weird fiction? Mm-mm. <laughs> no. I mean, it really doesn't. Yeah, it's not particularly weird. It's also not particularly weather. Now, don't jump ahead, Jess. Okay, sorry. I'm just Thanks, saying. Jess. Spoiler alert. But no, I don't think it's weird. Yeah, I don't either. Like, there's nothing, I, I, there's nothing twisted about this story. I don't know why this is in the volume, and I guess I can equate something like the onset of a massive storm um, being responded to from a human, like, you know, domestic, like, earthbound entity trying to deal with something that's well beyond their control to deal with. I guess I can see the analogy there. Mm-hmm. Maybe. But it's still not weather. Right, but that could be this anything. This belongs in the insect <laughs> volume. This belongs if anywhere, in the right? Yeah. yeah. If, I mean, if even then it's still not weird. It's it not weird. It's it's not weird, but at least there it would have some relevance thematically and you could make a better argument. I just think it's because it was like Doris Lessing writes Heck a story. Yeah. <laughs> like throw it in this volume. Why not? And then try and justify it later to the editors. Well, the, and the editor does make some some overtures as to why he selected it. We'll get we'll get to that in a minute to see whether we agree. But I, I totally agree with both of you. This is not a story that meets any classification, any qualification for weird fiction. This is a piece of literature. This is a, look this in my research that I did. This is a story that is studied in in high school and college literature classes. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, absolutely. there's probably not a lot of stories that we've done that with the exception of, of a few of the Poe stories, perhaps <laughs> that, would, that would find their way into high school or college literature syllabi. syllabi. Uh, but this story is certainly, it's certainly one of them. You look up this story on the internet, you're going to find a lot of papers that have been written about a mild attack of locusts, but none of them are going to be published in, in weird fiction journals. So I, I agree. I don't think the story qualifies as weird fiction. 
Uh, and, and at least on that level, we haven't gotten to the weather subject yet, but at least on the weird fiction level, uh, it might be misplaced in this volume. Well, let's so, just dive right in, Ryan. Let's, let's, Does it weather? Let's, let's dive weather? right in. Look, in the story notes, in the story <laughs> notes, our editor, Man Waring, suggests its place in this volume is due to the, quote, visceral sense of heavy weather given by the locust swarm. Do you buy it? No. You know what? That is the same thing as like turning up the font size of your paper, double and a half spacing it so that you meet the minimum page requirements. That is a that is a means that just by the ends and not the other way around, or maybe it is the other way around. I don't know. That Damien, did you write this paper in copper plate <laughs> gothic bold? I, I, I did. I did it wingdings. You're gonna have to deal with it. Wingdings. There is there is no reason for this story to be in this volume. And I think that anything in the author's or excuse me, in the editor's notes is pure justification as to why it's here. Uh you could deep dig deep into allegory, but I think that anything that has to do with man overcoming nature is a basic trope that can go and extend to any story. In so in many ways, genre. right? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. so being able to lean on that to say that's why it belongs here is uh is a logical fallacy. So I don't buy it. Yeah. And I can't wait till we talk to the editor so I can point out the fact that I don't buy it. <laughs> I agree. I agree, Damien. I, I don't buy it either. Jess. Yeah. Jess, what say you? Same. This is a story that is as much weather as me writing about being stuck in a traffic jam is weather or mm -hmm. a bunch of planes flying ahead is weather, right? Like it's, you're being affected by the volume of something. Yeah. All right. Well, that's, ev that's everything. Or, or, or like your monoville volume. Something is occurring in the sky, which is usually weather, but in this case, it's bugs. So let's call it weather and make it a metaphor. Yeah, like it like no. a, it's like a meteor shower, and you're like, oh, well, that's kind of weatherish. And and, and and more more to the point. Uh, well, I guess I can't say that because I haven't made the point yet. Here's the point I'd like to make. I don't think that Doris Lessing is writing this story as a weather-based no. story. No, not never. at all. Or right? a weird story. Or a weird fiction story. Yeah. Not, not handing, in the slightest. You're, you're handing the Nobel Award to uh, Doris and you're like, hey, so about that mild case of locusts or mild attack of locusts, like, how does it feel to write a weather story like that? And she'd be like, what are you talking about, you <laughs> fool? Right. Never talk to me again. Darn fool. Are you married? <laughs> <laughs> so Manwaring also reflects on Margaret's idea that the locusts will now be the new normal as an analog to our modern day experience of the coronavirus pandemic. What do you make of that analysis? What do you think about that as a potential, shall we say, excuse for the story being present in, in, in this volume? I understand. I think it's, it's similar justification to this bugs are weather. COVID is bugs is weather. <laughs> like I think we're trying to <laughs> we're trying to connect a lot of dots with a to... really long line. And I think you know, I think you could do it. This is his volume, right? We've talked to enough editors right. to know that you have a lot of freedom in picking and justifying and selecting stories. So Yes. But <laughs> This one is, it seems a stretch to include it in this volume, and it seems a stretch to try to make it relevant in a COVID way, because, like, we we still got a lot of sexism. That's still a thing that you mm -hmm. can use to connect it. Like, there's still a lot of colonial 
attitude happening in mm-hmm. the world. Like there's other things in the story that are current yes. and relevant yes. in a way that like trying to say this bug plague of right. weird fiction is weather, which is also, co- you know, there's just like a lot of, it's like everything is COVID. No, n- not everything is COVID. Well, right, everything yeah. is COVID yeah. in that's, the same way. Weather is COVID. Your yeah, traffic jam is COVID, right? That's like, exactly it. And that's, that's the sense I got. Yeah, I thought anything, it was grasping at straws a little bit in the explanation as to why this story was here. Yeah. And it was like, when you feel the isolation and the new norm and needing to adapt to the new norms, it's like, well, well COVID has nothing to do with weather. If we get a chance to speak with Mr. Man Waring, and I hope that we We'd do, uh, what 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 I'll expe- uh, accept entirely is that he says, Doris Lessing is one of my favorite writers, and this is among my and favorite stories. Be. Right. Sure. And, and right. you should put okay. her and, you, and, and you're throwing it into your book. Don't I'll sit take there that. and irrationally try and justify why it's right. here. Just be like, I put this in here because I love Doris Lessing. Suck it, losers. You already bought the book. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, exactly. Mine's going to be all non-weird Doris Lessing <laughs> stories. Well, let's let's return then to where we began, which is in fact with the author and her work. Uh, in general, what did you feel about the writing that you read here? So I have read a lot of Lessing. I think she's written 50 books. I have not read 50 books, but I've probably read more than a dozen. This is not my favorite Lessing what is your favorite? I would say my favorite is, so she has a book called Memoirs of a Survivor that's sort of a mm-hmm. mid-apocalyptic novel that's very good and very sad. Ooh. She has a kind of fun, horror, creepy kid book called The Fifth Child that I really oh. like. She's got some hard sci-fi that may not be for anyone because it's like the hardest trippiest sci-fi it's a very strange combination <laughs> Ooh, i'm but curious about that i am i am piqued in my interest <laughs> just based on that description even the like the sci-fi that's written as an examination of the characteristics of a series of planets right her writing style it's it's not easy but it's clear and interesting yeah, like the it's really writing good is really good and then there's 50 bajillion layers to everything that she's saying but the writing doesn't ever get to the point where you're reading it and you're like what is she talking about you always know what she's talking about yeah it's not too heavy it's not too complex (laughs) it's like light it's like layered but it's direct yeah and so yeah i love her writing this isn't I love that about her writing and then that her like chief quote that she's remembered by is, oh, Christ, I couldn't care less. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'll agree. I mean, character aside, I haven't read any Lessing in the past, but this was a strong story for me, not necessarily because of the story itself. But when I took when I separated like theme and arcs and, you know, forgettable characters to the actual writing itself, the writing excelled like it was full of really great one liners. Uh, it was full of excellent turns of phrase. Like the writing is what stood out more than anything else. If we were looking at this just as the story, we were examining the story and not yeah. trying to sort of shoehorn right. it in as mm-hmm. weird weather fiction. Thematically, right. Then I think that I think we would have a more positive view on it where it's just right. like the story is good. It just doesn't necessarily fit with what we've done thus far. I, I loved the writing. I thought. Uh, the visuals that she that she was creating on the page were so evocative the dialogue was really believable it had a it had a nice pace to it 
with ample but economical characterization. And I think that's what one of the things I really appreciated most about her writing was that it was so economic in its approach. It got across exactly what it needed to get across and in a beautiful and artistic way, but without one word wasted. Right. Like so, a few sentences on how gross the bugs are crawling right. all over everything. And you're just like, oh, yeah, I get it. Right. And it's Those like bugs are gross. But, most, but mostly it was like the natural tableaus and yeah, the, the yeah. atmosphere that was presented mm-hmm. and the scene of how she described the red brown steam coming off mm-hmm. the earth the land the ground like even repeating those three phrases to let you know that it was so Mm -hmm. it was so majestic so key for her right yeah the bugs hitting the roof yeah like hail like hailstones Mm -hmm. on the roof (laughs) it it reminded me in some ways of of valdemar because everybody remembers valdemar for the description of the gross guy at the end so (laughs) grotesque but it's like four sentences like yeah. it's so yeah. powerful, but it's, it's very, very tight. Yeah. It's very compact. Yeah. So this was my favorite line in the whole story. And this comes towards the end. This is on page 135. Lessing writes, well, thought Margaret, we may be ruined. We may be bankrupt, but not everyone has seen an army of locusts fanning their wings <laughs> at dawn. And like right. at first I read that and I thought it's a little comical. And then, and then I read it as a little sad. And then I read it as just absolutely beautiful. Yeah, um, there's a there's another writer who I really enjoy their nature writing. That's Peter Mathiason, and he's got some passages like that that just make you really sit back and wish you had seen mm-hmm. what what they're describing. And and Lessing did that for me there. I wish, in some ways, that that I had seen uh, locusts fanning their wings. Well, if you at, Google at some YouTube videos, yeah, right? It's, I mean, it's that really interesting approach as to like. When you look at the impact of tragedy, yeah. it's easy to point out the negative. Mm-hmm. But how often do authors or do filmmakers focus on the positive? Right. And it's one of those weird things that I think really differentiates the like the pure horror and tragedy of something like a um, you know, Night of the Living Dead. Mm-hmm. It's pretty clear cut, right? But then you find something else like some of the elements in early parts of the walking dead to stay thematically sort of similar where it's less about the zombies that are around you and more about the human relationships Mm -hmm. and more about the tableaus that are painted where you're looking off into the distance and seeing hope and promise. Right. And sort of focusing on those silver linings. Like, I think that that's really cool. And she did that. She did that with two different sets of characters. Margaret is the, I wouldn't call her the optimist. She's the realist, but she's also one who sits and recognizes the beauty in the moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Whereas all the men are utilitarian and just dealing with the conflict as it presents itself. And I thought that that dichotomy was really well deployed and effectively captured. The first part of what you said there was almost word for word one of my notes that I made, which is that the way she's able to direct our attention to beauty in the midst of destruction was awesome. And you brought up filmmakers, a filmmaker that comes immediately to mind when I, when I think of that capability is Terrence Malick, uh, particularly in, in tree of life, which is uh, a beautiful movie uh, about a terrible tragedy. And (laughs) if if you haven't, if you haven't seen any of Terrence Malick's works, uh, I recommend them. Um, They're not light and they're not short. But but they do exactly that. They they find beauty in the midst of destruction and in the midst of tragedy. 
Yeah. Uh, the other thing the story did that I appreciated was it it just imbued me with this sense of my place in things, which is to say ne- <laughs> negligible, right? right? It's what I like about cosmic horror. Uh, this this was a single locust. In the yeah, <laughs> this, this wasn't cosmic horror at all, but it but it almost was. Um, and, and the way that it suggested, <laughs> yeah. like the locusts aren't evil. They're just doing what they do. They do what they do. And there's and they're beauty gonna do in that it nature. Yeah. No matter what. Like, no matter you're not what. You stopping can't, them. You can't stop you're just it. moving right. them. Right. So I, I appreciated that. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating when you think about the fact that, like, I think I mentioned earlier how um, old Stephen, like, he slices open one of them as a scientific mm-hmm. experiment to just say, this life is meaningless because I need to show you that they're full of eggs. Right. And this is the next level of threat. And then another time he finds one in his pocket and he looks at him and basically humanizes him and says, oh, oh you've got really strong legs. What a cute, cute little bug. And I'm going to throw you out in the swarm. Like there was absolutely no reason for him to throw him out of the swarm. It is one in a million, but it is still a life. It is a singular life. And yeah, I agree with you completely that that shows that sort of like that grandiose nature mm-hmm. of just we are we are one of millions and billions on the planet. Like, what do we really matter? And I think that this is a good way. This was a good story to encapsulate that. So did this story in any way frighten or scare you? Did did the scare hold up here? I mean, there's a general sense of unease, mm-hmm. <laughs> some discomfort. Yeah, it's not a scary story, but it, no. it's a discomforting story. Uh, yeah. Does it weather? No. Did the scare hold up? <laughs> no. No. But this also harkens back to the fact that we all agree that why the hell was this story in here to begin right. with? <laughs> right. Why was this really good story? <laughs> was it a good story? Yeah. Yeah. It was. Was it the best? No. But was it effective? Was mm-hmm. it good? Yes. Did it belong in this anthology? I don't I don't necessarily think so. I, I agree with all that. And that that's gonna take us then to our whiskey ratings. This is how we rate our stories here on Whiskey and the Weird. Between zero and five fingers of whiskey. I'm gonna kick this one off tonight with two fingers of whiskey and, and i'd like to offer a brief explanation about that uh, Briefly this is explain yes a mild mild explanation mildly uh, this is this is more for how i felt about its place in this collection rather than as a story mm-hmm. as a whole uh i yeah i fair. don't i don't know that i would Not rate fair. it I don't know that I would rate it more than a three if I were rating it outside of this collection, but if I'm rating it outside of this collection, I probably would give it a three. It's extremely well-written. It didn't do a lot for me on a first reading. I have to say it left me feeling sort of blasé. But another effect of it is that I'm inclined to seek out more Lessing uh, stories. I would like to read more of her writing. I I would like to read more of her short works. I'm particularly interested in some of her science fiction um, but as far as, as this particular story was concerned in this volume, two fingers of whiskey from Whitley. <laughs> he just walked out of the room. <laughs> he did. He left. I don't know what to do here. Jess, what do you got? Uh, I'm going with a four partially because I am giving it the Doris Lessing bump in that. I just like everything that she's written, but reading this and reading other stories just reminds and shows me, I guess, how much further above 
her writing is than so many of the other authors mm, that we're mm-hmm. covering. I mean, it's sort of strange to like read her writing and it feels out of place both in what's in the story, right? Not weird, not weather, but that it also feels out of place in that it's just like really beautiful it's piece good. of literature that is actually <laughs> yeah. very good. Like, sure. you know, our last so story was a kind of objectively good, yeah, pulpy spy adventure weather romp. Right. You know? And the <laughs> the next one is also a little bit of a kind of pulpy so it's just this one is spoilers yes this one is a little bit out of place but in a way that makes me recognize how great her writing is and how much i like it so we're going with the four damien so to me uh i'm gonna give it a three and a half and for most of the reasons that jessica said i don't necessarily allow its placement in the anthology that we're talking about to truly affect my finger rating (laughs) On the story (laughs) quality itself. The story here was supremely well written. It is the output of a very uh, proficient author. So given the fact that I don't believe that it belongs here, (laughs) I I don't think that it's weird. And I do have some questions for the editor as to why it appeared here. I'm not going to let the editor's selection of this in the in the anthology affect my rating of it as a story overall. I rate each of the stories independently and not where they <laughs> place and how they compare and what they would do like in another anthology. So I respect completely the fact that you do, Ryan, but I think that you dinging it for the editor's uh, influence and not the author's intent is a little overstretching. No, I, I, I'm going to stand by it. If if I'm John Q reader who picks up this volume looking for weird stories or weather stories or hopefully both and I get to this story I don't find it and I forget how well written the story is because but it's I not say, what I want. Okay fine but I say that you are placing your finger rating on the editor and not on the author. Like I said, I'd be inclined to read more of Doris Lessing's work. I'd be inclined to give her another another go. Uh, but this story doesn't belong in this volume. And so it gets it gets dinged for me. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, that's going to take us to our if this, then that. Damien, you've got that for us tonight? Uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, I do. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to actually remembered give- suddenly. <laughs> <laughs> What I'm going to do is I'm going to give our own podcast a little bit of love and send you back to season two, episode six, so that you can revisit the wonder that is Linogen versus the ants by Carl Stevenson. It was a good story uh, that belonged in its volume. It A good story that belonged in its volume. <laughs> uh, this, of course, was our creeping <laughs> horror uh, volume that essentially covered insects in weird tales. And this was a balls out Indiana Jones style tale that saw a swarm of very large ants honing in on a uh, South American uh, plantation. Uh, And it is very action forward. It's not as deep and philosophical and literary as this story, but (laughs) there's more dynamite. There's more dynamite. When you want to talk about humans against an insurmountable insect foe. And in this one, in Line Engine versus the Ants by Carl Stevenson, you do see a lot more human death 
<laughs> and a heck of a lot more destruction. I think they could be read as partner pieces, right? We don't see the husband a lot during a mild attack of locusts. So right. we could read Linengen versus the ants as to what the husband is up to. Oh, I, like I that think idea. that is a great, great <laughs> point because this is the actionary versus the obs- right. observational. Like, Margaret's narrator. inside. Yeah. Richard so, is line engine. Great point. So I'm going to give us some love and Carl Stevenson some love and send you back to season two, episode six of Whiskey and the Weird so that you can re-enjoy line engine versus the ants. Nice. An amazing self-reflective <laughs> recommendation. A modest choice. A modest, a mild choice. A mild <laughs> choice, yes. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us. We've had a lot of fun with this episode. We hope that you have, too. If you did, would you mind giving us a rating and a review wherever you catch your podcasts? We want to thank tonight, as always, Dr. Blake Brandis for providing the music for Whiskey and the Weird. And tonight, a special shout-out goes to my son Jackson who has provided me with some brand new headphones uh, the better with which to <laughs> listen to my co-hosts <laughs> speak I'm grateful to Jackson for allowing me to use his new uh, video game headphones they work amazing thanks Jackson thanks Jackson so if folks are feeling social or perhaps want to tell us why we're wrong about uh, Doris Lessing's selection for this volume where could they do that Damien Hey, feel free to send your hate mail to us at Whiskey Weird Pod on Twitter, at Whiskey Weird Pod on Twitter. We're also on Instagram at Whiskey and the Weird, at Whiskey and the Weird on Instagram. We spell our whiskeys with an E, and we hope you do too. If not, look, I respect you. I want you to keep your crops intact because I am a good neighbor. So I will not send a swarm of locusts to you. End of story. Maybe some hoppers. Maybe some hoppers. <laughs> This episode has been brought to you by State Farm. <laughs> yes. Good What's, name? Our name? <laughs> What's our next story? We have the incredibly titled Monsoons of Death by Gerald Vance. That is an amazing title. That and is I can't hardcore. Wait for that. Yeah. <laughs> if, it's, if it's some philosophical headpiece, I'm going to be mad. <laughs> totally. I'm Ryan Whitley. I'm Jessica Berg. And I'm Damian Smith. And together, we're Whiskey and the Weird. Thank you so much, everybody. Somebody, send us home. As always, keep your friends through the ages and your creeps in the pages. Good night. <laughs>